Well, before we get started, I just want to take a second. Uh, I know Chris mentioned it in the announcements, but I just want to take a second to encourage you to take some time and think through what's going on in your life. We want to pray for you. We long to pray. We are blessed. We are gifted. We have been, this is God's, you know, this is one of the greatest gifts we have from the Lord is to be able to pray for one another, to ask him to work on one another's behalf. And so I would encourage you, just take some time and think through what's going on. We're going to pray for you. We pray for you as your pastors. I know we pray for you regularly, proactively, whether we know what's going on or not. But, but let us pray for you specifically about the, the things going on in your life. And, and, and so I would just encourage you to, to use that email address, even if it's not for uh, this night of worship. While I think that would be a great thing, uh, continue to use it. Let us know how we can pray for you. Um, so, so anyway, uh, just... Uh, I just want you to know it. it's our heart to care for you in that way. So, all right, Luke, to this point, we have um, been studying through, reading through and, and studying this gospel account, and we have been walking through the, the birth narratives, and it's really a two-chapter kind of thing, and, and the first part of this has really focused on the contrast between what's happening between these two uh, announcements. One announcement Gabriel made was to uh, Elizabeth, or to Zachariah, that his wife Elizabeth was going to get pregnant. They had never had a baby. They were old and uh, uh, beyond childbearing years. They had never been able to have a child, but they were heard from Gabriel, yes, you're going to have a child. And, and uh, the other is, in contrast to that, is, is not an old couple or uh, even someone uh, who wasn't able to have a baby, but Gabriel goes to someone, in contrast to that, who is so young that she couldn't have a baby because she had never done the thing that you do to have a baby. So she was a virgin, right? It was, it was impossible for her to get pregnant. Just in the same way that Zachariah and Elizabeth had felt like it was impossible for them to get pregnant. They had aged. I mean, they hadn't, it's not like they had protection and things like that we use today, child um, uh, birth control and things like that. So the reality was they were shocked, probably disappointed, maybe even bitter that they had never had kids. But there's these contrasting stories in which we get to see God working to, to do His will, to bring about His redemptive purposes. And in the contrast, we also find that they are complementary. So the contrasting in the circumstances, but complementary in the purpose. And in the sense that John the Baptist, who was going to be born of, and we've studied his birth last week, John the Baptist is going to be the forerunner of Christ. He's the one going before. He's the one telling everybody he's the Messiah. So it's great, it's great for a guy to stand up and say, hey, I'm the Messiah. That was a good thing, right? It, it was necessary to happen. But it's even better when somebody says, hey, he's the Messiah. I heard it from God himself. He's the Messiah. So, so this isn't just some lunatic out there making claims. I was, I was born. The very reason I was born was for this purpose, to tell people that he's the Messiah. So he's the one that's going to do that. We've seen him born. We've seen the celebration that was around that. We've seen that celebration actually pointing at, at the coming Christ. And today we get to study one of the most significant events, one of the most purposeful and, and powerful events in, in all of history. Maybe the most, not maybe, the most powerful, most significant event that's ever taken place. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 7. We're going to study that moment. Where, where, where God's Son, Jesus, our King, was born, where God was born. And while you're, while you're getting ready for that and thinking about that, I just want to say this, because I, at first when I started this series, I thought that I would manipulate it. I'm going to use that word. It's not necessarily the best word, but I was, I was trying to work it out so that I would get to Luke chapter 2 and walk through the birth narrative 
of Christ in the Christmas season. So like we get to Thanksgiving and now, okay, now we're at Luke chapter 2 because that fits our calendar, right? The Lord impressed upon me, pressed back on me. Actually, thankfully, he does that quite a bit because otherwise you'd be in trouble. <laughs> but it's the truth. I mean, just to be honest. But, but anyway, so, so he pressed back on me because the reality is, is that we so often study this passage around Christmas that we lose sight of what's really going on because of all the baggage we carry with Christmas. The reality is, is this, this birthday, this, this event is so much more. Luke didn't write this. He didn't write this gospel account so that we could have a holiday at the end of December and get a few days off of work. He didn't write this account simply so that we could, so that we could give gifts to one another and, and, and celebrate and feel all special for a few days. The reality, the significance, the power of this event, the the reality of this event is that this is a birthday that should be celebrated every day. And so I'm thankful that even now as we look towards Christmas, for some of you that's already begun, you know, we hit Halloween, boom, Halloween's over, now it's Christmas, we skip right past, like the orange and black lights come down and the red and green lights go up, right? So that's how some people are, and that's just the reality of it, we skip right past Thanksgiving. But as we look at the, at, the, <clears throat> at the season that we're about to go into, I'm grateful that you're going to go into that season with this story, with a perspective not driven by the busyness of that season, but by driven by, the, by, by what God did in this moment in time. It's powerful. And I think sometimes we, all too often we miss it. We miss the significance of it. We miss how important it was that he put on flesh and dwelt among us. But today, that's what we're going to study, is he came, and God became a man. Let's read. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out. <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and All went to be registered, each to his own town, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end, in the inn. So, so Luke starts, he draws us back into the narrative. So he tells the story of John the Baptist's birth, and then he tells the story of Zechariah getting his voice back and singing praises and worshiping God, and there's this doctrinal, just, just doctrinal, theological rich, theologically rich overflow of this song and this prophecy that Zechariah that Zachariah sings. Well, no, Luke draws us back into this, the, the narrative of the story, the story that he's telling, and he draws us into that place by saying, in those days. There is a story he is telling. There is a, there is a line, a thread that is running along through these, these passages and through these chapters that he is drawing us back to in those days. There's a specific moment in history that he's thinking of that he's referring to, and he calls it out in those days. What days? 
Well, in those days when, when Zechariah is hearing in the temple that his, his wife is going to be pregnant and then she gets pregnant and they have a baby and they name him John and instead of Zechariah, like all their neighbors wanted him to be named. In those days, in those days when Gabriel is coming and announcing things to, to women and to men who are telling them that, that life is going to be placed in their womb where life has never been before in those days... In those days when Caesar Augustus was ruling over the Roman Empire, the, the, the known world. I mean, he was ruling in such a way, he was the emperor of the world, essentially. I mean, you see how it says it. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world, in his mind, he is the ruler of the world. You come and you register and you, you, you bow to me. You obey me. In those days when his governor was Quirinius, and in those days when Quirinius heard the first call to go and have a census, then that census was to count people, maybe for one or two, three purposes. Maybe because he wanted his ego stroked. This is how many people I rule over. This is how many people, so in a pastor's mind, this is how many people are in my church, right? This is how many people answer to me. I'm stroking his power ego. Or it could have been about money, his selfish ego. I I need to know how many people I've got so I know how many taxes I should collect. How wealthy am I going to be? Or, hey, I have these many people with this many men that are of age that could carry a sword that I can go and extend my reign. These all are reasons he potentially could have started this idea or pushing towards of uh, uh, counting and, and the census and It's in those days that this occurred. It's in those days that that Joseph and Mary heard this call and had to get up and go. Now, for us, it doesn't sound like a specific time because we like everything. like, like When we talk about specific, we want to know, like, this is December 25th in such and such year, right? That's what we want to know. It wasn't December 25th. They wouldn't have even used that term anyway. But the reality is... That's what we long for. We want to know specifics. This is less like a roadmap to a de- destination. This isn't like Google Maps leading us to a, to a destination, that little red teardrop on your phone that, oh, now I know I've arrived. This is more like the old timer from Ozark that's giving directions that says, hey, go up the big hill, take a left at the big intersection. If you're from Ozark, you know what that means. You, would do, you could do that. Oh, and when you see cows, you're just about to Sparta. If you get to Sparta, you've gone too far, you need to turn around and come back. Look for the tree that was struck by lightning and take a left at that tree. Now I'm making this part up. I don't know if there's a tree down there that got struck by lightning. Probably is. Turn left at that tree, go down and around that hill, take a right as you cross the bridge, and boom, you're here. I think if you follow that, you might end up in Linden. And you don't know where that is. That's the thing. It's, this is more like that. It's, it's more like, hey, this is happening generally in this time, this, this, this time. And the reality is, I think it's better we don't know the time. I, I think it's better we don't have a day that we pinpoint this on. Because it's not the day that matters. It's the event that matters. It's what's happening that matters. In those days, it draws us into the narrative. It gives us a, a frame of reference. But he never stays in the reference. He never says, okay, so this is why I'm telling you about the reference. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't make a big deal about the reference. He simply goes on. 
He says, this reference, this time of reference, this ruling Caesar, he has a part to play, but he's not the point. This time frame has a part to play, but it's not the point. Joseph and Mary hear the call. They've got to get up and go. So Joseph is not from Nazareth. He wasn't born in Nazareth. He had moved there for some reason we don't know. He's living in a town 100 miles north in Nazareth, about 100 miles north of Bethlehem. And now, because of this, he has got to get up and take his, his fiance, his betrothed wife, who is pregnant, who's about nine months pregnant, got to go south. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal to you and me, probably, because 90 miles doesn't seem that much. 90, 100 miles, not that big a deal. No, this is a big deal. This is, takes for like four and a half days. If the average day of travel is 20 miles a day, which is that's what they would consider an average day of travel, that's four and a half days of travel, if I did my math right. I'm not a mathematician, so somebody nod at me if I'm right. Okay, good. Four and a half days. So, it, it, that's... And, and, and here, imagine this. I mean, they're not climbing in their suburban with comfy heated seats. She might be on the back of a donkey. She might be walking. And we got this image in our mind, I think, because of the movie or because of our nativity scenes that she's riding on the back of a donkey. It never says the word that she rode on a donkey. Never says anything about it. All we know is that they had to get up and go. And, and I don't really know that it matters because, I mean, at the end of the day, you think 100 miles a pregnant woman, 100 miles on foot, or a pregnant woman, 100 miles bouncing around on the back of a donkey. I've never been pregnant, but it doesn't sound pleasant. I mean, it just doesn't, that doesn't sound ideal, right? But they got to go. And here's the thing is that it's not just them that have got to go. I mean, there's, this, is, this is the whole world. It would be naive to think. It would be naive to think that Joseph and Mary are the only ones having to travel in this. Right? The, the whole world is put into turmoil. The whole known world, the whole ruled world by Caesar Augustus is put into turmoil because he wants to know how many people are in his kingdom. And so they go. And they travel. And when they get there, we find out when they get there that there was no room for them in the inn. And in our mind, we've got like Holiday Inn, you know, or Red Roof Inn, or that, that place, I don't know what the place is that leaves the light on for you. That, that's the picture that comes in our head, you know. There's no light left on for them. They show up and there's no place for them to stay because so many people are in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a little bitty city. It was a little bitty town. Little bitty. Just imagine if we hosted the World Series in Springfield, Missouri, like Springfield Cardinals are going to move out of their stadium for a day and we're going to host the World Series. What does that do to the systems in Springfield? We would be undone. The stadium wouldn't even come close to holding the number of people that want to watch. Like, we'd have to build a whole new stadium. We'd have to, we'd have to extend our borders and build up some hotels to house everybody that's coming. It would undo us. Our systems couldn't handle it. That's what had happened in, in Bethlehem is that these people that are doing the census, the ones counting and taking the taxes, they're moving in. I've got to be here. We've got to count. got to take your money. And everybody that's from there, everybody whose hometown is there, who's having to come and register there, imagine how crowded it was. Silent night, that's a, that's a farce. There was no silent night in Bethlehem during this time. It was busy. It was difficult. And, and the world felt like it was in turmoil because everything was put on hold simply so Caesar Augustus could know who's in his kingdom. 
And this is the world. This is the place where, this is the time in which God had chosen to pick a virgin who was betrothed to a man from Bethlehem. They get up and go, and they get there, and in all likelihood, they didn't stay in a nice, warm, cozy stable surrounded by hay that rubbed up against a nice, soft, woolly sheep. Have you ever been in a stable? It smells like poop. Manure, that's the more technical term. It smells like manure. You've been in the elephant house, and that's what it smelled like. That's what... We've romanticized this idea that Jesus came into this perfect existence and everything was nice and comfy for him. The world was not welcoming Jesus. In fact, the whole set of circumstances that led to this point had nothing to do with Jesus. It had to do with a selfish man after selfish means, building his own kingdom. But this is the world that Jesus was born into. See, it's in this, though, it's it's in the midst of this that we find what is the most significant event that has ever occurred. And it's, it's, it's written for us in verse Seven in such simple, normal, everyday language. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. I mean, if, if we didn't stop right now and take time to focus on this, we could just skip right past it. It's, it's so normal. I mean, we still do this. Women still give birth to their firstborn son. Women still, uh, parents still wrap their kids up like burritos and lay them in cribs. We still do it. It's every day. It's happening. And in this church, it's happening a lot. And it's a great thing, but it's so normal. And Luke, if, 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 if we hadn't had the context, if we, didn't, if we didn't have the verses before and the verses that come after, I mean, this would just be a normal event. It would be nothing. It would just be an everyday occurrence. As simply and humbly as possible, Jesus enters into our world. A world that is spinning and, and functioning and working and, and, and going on about its business without even stopping to think how desperately it needs a Savior. Just clicking away. Time is ticking on. In the midst of this very significant event, which doctrinally we call the incarnation. And incarnation, it's, it's a Latin term that really means about putting on clothes. It's, a, it's about, uh, or, or clothing oneself with flesh, I'm sorry. It's, it's about putting on flesh, like clothing oneself in flesh. But we've co-opted that term. Christians have co-opted that term specifically for our own purpose because, because it refers to what, what we see happening with Christ. The incarnation is the moment when God became 
man. He was born of a virgin. Yes, that's significant. That's the way it happened. But, but, but there's a significant event. God became man. Jesus, who was completely God, had always been completely God, did something miraculous, did something amazing, and he took on the nature of man such that he is now completely 100% God. Now he is 100% completely, fully man, and he will always be when we get to heaven when we see our savior he will not be a spiritual mist he will be in the form of a man he will be this forever and ever and this is what we have agreed on it's it's pretty amazing when you stop and think about the the number of disagreements that go on in christianity with with doctrine and theology but this is one of those ones that we recognize fully that everybody agrees on and we have since about 450 A.D. when, <clears throat> when it was determined that this is, the, this is what the Bible was teaching. They had the view before, but as, as heresy would raise up, they would, they would work through it. They would defend what the Bible teach, taught. I'm sorry, they would defend what the Bible taught and to come to about 450 A.D. And here they are. They've agreed upon this. And, and we have ever since that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And, and the thing that concerns me, the thing that scares me is that we talk about this sometimes so so doctrinally and theologically, so clinically, if you will, that we miss the significance of it. This is the most profound event that has ever occurred. Theologians speak of it as terms of the most profound of all miracles recorded in the Scripture. Wayne Grudem writes this, it, the incarnation is what he's referring to, it is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible, far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even that the creation than that of the creation. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever so that the infinite God could be, became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery of all the universe. But as soon as we begin using words like incarnation and, and talk about Jesus being fully man and fully God, we get so wrapped up in questions and so wrapped up in, in the misunderstandings of it that, that we lose sight or that we, we tag on the baggage of Christmas and it's about gifts and it's about holidays and, and days off and being with family and we miss the fact that it is not about any of that. It's all about the fact that God who created the universe at a point in history took on flesh and became man. God came to us and became a man. He is fully God and fully Holy man, praise be to him. Because of it, we have hope forever in the life to come. You see, there is a reality that this is more significant than I think we ever give it credit for. And as I read this verse, this simple, normal verse, and considered the context, the verse is coming before. The angel proclaiming the visiting, the, the, the coming king. The angel opening wombs that had never born a child. The angel who said the Holy Spirit is going to come down on you and put in you a baby to a virgin. The angel who had power and was sent of God to say these things. And I think of the context of what's coming. What Jesus will be. And what He will do. I think of those things and I think this is no small, simple, normal, everyday birth of a baby wrapped, wrapped up like a burrito and laid down in his crib to sleep. This is significant. So today, I just want us to think about how significant this moment is. And you won't listen, you won't stay long enough for me to go through all the reasons I think this. 
You may not stay for the three, but, but you may get tired and go away, but, but I'm going to give you three. First, I think this is significant because God's decree will never be overridden, undermined, or determined by the will of man. It will not be overridden. Someone's not going to change it because they're more powerful. It will not be undermined. Someone can't take away from the authority of it, and it will never be determined by the will of man. The incarnation was always God's plan. In this passage, Luke shows us a man with a plan. Like he's building his own kingdom. And he is demanding that people bow to him. And pay homage to him. In fact, Caesar Augustus, it's thought that Caesar Augustus was one of the first that maybe said that, that, that he shouldn't be worshipped. But the Caesars were thought to be gods. I don't know where I read that, so I could be wrong, but... But, but I do know that the Caesars, there was deity, they were, they were deified in Roman culture. And he is expecting people to pay homage to him and bow before him and, and submit to his authority. And he has got a plan. In fact, his plan is being followed. And, and, and on the surface, it would, seem, it would seem that Joseph and Mary are having to submit to his plan. But there is so much more at work here. There's so much more going on. God is at work. This is His plan unfolding. Even using a man like Caesar Augustus. And it's all the way through the Scripture from beginning to end. Let's just step back a little bit and take a look. Isaiah 7.14 is written about 700 years before Christ was ever born. Before He was ever conceived. About 700 years earlier, Isaiah hears from God and writes, Therefore the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, here's the thing is that you and I might come up with an old lady getting pregnant. We might come up with that and say, hey, that could happen. But there's no one in in their right mind. There's no one in their right mind that would ever say a virgin, the one who has never done what you got to do to get pregnant. No one in their right mind would ever make this claim. And 700 years before it was going to take place. God knew. God had a plan. It was no accident that he was choosing Mary who was chosen or who was betrothed to a man named Joseph. Because at that same time, Micah was writing about the same time as Isaiah, about 700 years before Christ was born. It was no accident that Mary was engaged, was betrothed to a man who was not from Nazareth but from Bethlehem, God speaks to Micah, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah from you, shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. That is Jesus, and he was going to be born in Bethlehem 700 years before it ever occurred. God was at work. This was his plan, and he was sovereignly ruling. He was sovereignly moving. He was sovereignly orchestrating, directing things to happen. On the surface, it certainly seems like Mary and Joseph are are being forced by Caesar to do this thing. God's there, directing, ruling. We can go back even further. 700 years, that's a long time, but we can go back even further. 4,000 years before Christ was ever 
conceived, before the word was ever said to Mary, 4,000 years early in, earlier in Genesis 3.15, God, speaking to the serpent at the fall of man, speaking to the serpent, says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the proto-evangelium. It's the prototype of the gospel. It's the first time that the gospel message was ever proclaimed and is by God's mouth. In the midst of a sinful and rebellious circumstance, God already had plans to send His Son. And don't miss this. We're going to need it in a minute. Remember this. Who put the enmity there? Who put the strife? Who put the discord? God did. I will put this enmity between you. I will make there to be tension between you two. Between her offspring and your offspring. And your offspring is going to bruise His heel. It's going to become an annoyance to him. It's going to, it's going to do something that seemingly would hurt him. But her offspring is going to bruise your head. It's going to be the final blow. You see, God was working even then. But we can go back even further. See, before they fell into sin, God had a plan. 1 Peter 1, 20-21, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Who is that? That's Jesus. Who was known before the foundations of the world, before God ever said, let there be light? Who was foreknown? Who, who was the one that He knew? Who was the one coming? Who was the one made manifest in the last times for the sake of us who would become believers in God? Who was that? It was Jesus. Before the first tick of the clock, before the first second rang off of the clock, before the first glimmer of light shone on the horizon, before he made order out of the chaotic mess that, that was the creation before he put it all together. Before any of that, in the Godhead he knew, not in reaction to our sin, but as his plan, son. Yes, father. You long for a bride. You desire your bride. You will go and get her. Yes, I will, dad. Yes, I will. And I will purify her. And I'll make her holy and I will make her blameless. And I will present her to myself because I've gone to get her. This agreement was going on between them far before, far before the, 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 first, uh, the, the, the first call of creation ever came. And God is doing this work. It's His plan. Because of that, we can trust Him. We can trust Him. We don't have to doubt. We don't have to be concerned about all the things that are happening around us. I mean, in a world of uncertainty, like who knows what's going to happen next? In a world of difficulty, it's not easy. In a world of danger, I mean, you just think of the things that we're hearing. Think of the things that are filling up the news feeds on Twitter and Facebook. Think of the headlines on the newspapers. In our own state, we've had racial tension that has been raging now really for, for a long time. And if you think it's ironic when you think about how long racial tension has been alive in, in Missouri, I mean, it's all over, but... Just think of our history. But it's become very prevalent, very prominent over this last year. It is difficult. 
It's dangerous. I mean, just a couple of days ago, terrorists are blowing up stuff in France. Here's the thing is that you talk to the people about racial tensions and and there's different ideas, there's different perspectives, there are different opinions. Who do, I, who do I side with? Who do I trust? Who do I listen to? Who has the answer? Well, I don't know what to think anymore. I mean, I, there's, there's different opinions in this room. There's different opinions across this church. And not to count the, what's going on in Springfield. I mean, the perspectives of people in Springfield, it's just crazy. There's different perspectives all over. Who do, I, who, who do we listen to? Do I, do I turn on Fox and listen, or do I turn on CNN and develop my opinion? Well, the stuff that's going on in France, just consider it. We're calling them terrorists because they're hurting innocent people, but in their minds, if you talk to them, they are fighting a holy war. They are doing God's work. Who do we listen to? Who do we trust? Do, do I just, all right, well, I'm just going to go off of my perspectives and what I've experienced and, and what I think is right and wrong, and I'm going to determine everything for myself. I'm going to soul up inside, and I'm going I'm I'm to be the one who determines what's right and wrong. I'm going to be the one who determines the best perspective to hold. I'm going to do everything based off of my own ideas, my own experiences, my own thoughts, what little things I've learned. Is that what we're to do? Our hearts are deceitful above all things. So I, I wouldn't encourage you to trust yourself an ounce. I don't trust myself. Who are we then to look to? We're to look to God. And it's significant. This event is significant because it proves his involvement. He came. He always had a plan. He always had a plan to come and be here with us. But, but it doesn't end here. It doesn't, it doesn't stop in, in this moment, at this time, in those days. It doesn't stop there. Because the same God who called out the gospel in Genesis, the same God who put on flesh and dwelt with us, is the same God who sits on the throne in Revelation. That's the same God. It says in Revelation 21, 1 through 5, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, this is God speaking. Sitting on his throne, Jesus, our Savior and God. Behold, the dwelling place of God was with man. Don't miss that. The dwelling place of God is with man. What he came and did in those days, he is coming to do and make it permanent. The dwelling place of God himself or is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Don't you long for that? Isn't that what you want in the depths of who you are, is the, the existence of peace and satisfaction and the fullness of joy? That's what we all want. That's what we all long for. And this is happening for the former things have passed away. And he says this in verse 5, And he who is seated on the throne said, This is Jesus. Behold, I am making all things new. Don't miss this nuance. I heard it just this week and it's, it's, it's profound. He is not making new things. You, you get that? He's, he's not abandoning what he's made and walking away from it. He is making the things he has made new. He is making us new. 
The same God who called out the gospel in Genesis, the same God who in those days put on flesh and was born and wrapped up and swaddled as a baby and laid in the manger is the same God who sits on the throne in Revelation. That's why it's significant. Because this is God's plan and nothing will undermine it. Nothing will change it. Nothing can override it. And nothing, nothing will get in its way. It is coming. We can be certain. It is significant because God has always been the initiator of relationship between himself and man. Before we were ever called to come to Jesus in the incarnation, he came for us. Man, we get this wrong so often. Right? I mean, when we're thinking about it, we got to figure out how to get to Jesus. How do I make my way to him? Why, why am I so distant from him? i gotta, I got to get to him. The whole time forgetting, before you ever even thought about getting up to follow him, he had already stood in front of you. I mean, you just consider this. God came to you and made himself known. He didn't expect you to figure it out on your own. He didn't expect his followers to figure it out on their own. I, lo- I love this. Jesus is with his disciples it's the last night he's about to be arrested, betrayed and arrested and, and tried and condemned and crucified. And he's the last time he gets to be with his disciples before this all takes place. And he's encouraging them, he's teaching them, and he tells them in John 14, he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't, don't be troubled. What you're about to see, what you're about to experience, is going to be difficult, but don't let your heart be troubled. I've overcome the world. You don't have to be afraid of it. I'm going away. Where, you, where I'm going, you can't come. But, but don't be troubled. And, and Thomas, is, well, Thomas is concerned. Show us the way. How do we get there? Well, I need directions, Jesus. I, 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 I want to be able to find you. And he says, Thomas, I'm coming back. I'm coming back to get you. And Philip, Philip's like, I don't know why Thomas is worried, but, because I believe that. But, but, but Jesus, here, I just have this one request. And he says this in John 14, 8 through 9. He says, Lord, show, to, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. So I don't need directions. I don't need a way to get to you. Just, just show us God. Just show us the Father. Show us your Father, and that will be enough. And that sounds noble. I mean, isn't that what we want? To just to see God, just to know He's with us, just to know that He's by us. It's so, so full and powerful. Yes, just show me the Father. And Jesus says, Philip, with, I think, eyes filled with compassion and tender care. Philip, have I been with you so long? You still do not know me. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. God came for you. And if you know Jesus, you know God. And He is with you. And no, you don't have Him in your physical presence right now, but He said, I'm coming back. And He said, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to fill you with my Spirit. If you know Jesus, you know God. If you know Jesus, it's because the Spirit is in you. Brothers and sisters, that is our hope, that is our confidence, and that's why this moment in time, this this verse 7 that seems so normal and simple, so humble, is so significant and so profound for us. I mean, if Jesus hadn't approached Matthew at his tax collector table, he'd still be collecting taxes. 
If Jesus hadn't walked up to Philip, James, and John, and, 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 or I'm sorry, Peter and Andrew and James and John on the, on, the, on the beach and said, hey, come, put your nets down, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, they would have kept on fishing. They never would have known the joy of walking with Christ. We are who we are. Our hope is this, that He came to us. And so we no longer, no longer do we have to stand up there saying, hey, come to Jesus. We get to tell people, He came to you. Every Christmas, this should be the cry on our lips. Jesus became a man God put on flesh and dwelt among us. This is significant. This is profound. Number three, real quickly. The third reason I think this is significant is that God is working offensively, not defensively. Jesus' incarnation is an invasion into hostile territory. I think in our church cultures, this is another thing we get wrong so often. Like we're building up our defenses and we're trying to ward ourselves off and separate ourselves. And if we can just gather in here, we can keep ourselves from the trouble of the world. That is not what he's called us to. Our God is not a God who is operating out of a defensive posture. He is, an, he is a God who's got an offensive strategy. He's not just sitting back trying to just maintain what he's put together. He is, he is, he is taking it to the enemy. And in the incarnation, we learn that we see it. All the trouble, all the discord, all the problems that were going on in this world, all the seeming difficulties, this was not a welcoming world for the Savior. But it's the one he came into. In Matthew 16, 18, I love this. Peter has just been encouraged by Jesus. So, so Jesus says, who do they say I am? And, and Peter says, well, or they, Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter says to, to, to Jesus, well, you're the son of God. You know, and, and, and Jesus is like, that's right. I don't know about you, but I think that would feel pretty good if Jesus looked at me and said, you're right. You know, that would feel special. But he says, you didn't get that on your own. It was revealed to you from heaven above, and, and so it's not really to your credit. But, but yes, you are right. And then he says this to him, Matthew 16, 18. And he says, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we talk about this all the time. We, we use this as, a, as, as an encouragement to one another that, that God will win. But I think there's something important here that we need to notice. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Gates and walls are used to defend. You know who's defensive in this, in this conflict? You know who's defending themselves? Satan and his people. Satan and his demons, they are the ones on the defense. God offensively comes in. He steps into hostile territory and he says, here I am. Come to get my people. I've come to get you and take you out. And here's the thing. In the same way Jesus came to us, he now sends us into the world to make him known. See, he didn't call you to stand at a distance and shout at the world, hey, you need to come to Jesus. When he called you into his kingdom, he put you on his team and he sent you on his mission. We didn't choose what team we were on. He chose the team for us and he put us in this place. And he says, now go and do this. He says, go and tell them who I am. 
And he sends us into hostile territory. He says, come to me. He says, he says you come and follow me. I, I'm here. Now you just follow along with me. You do my work alongside me. You, in the power of my spirit, you come and be with me. Because I've come to be with you. He sends us. He sends us in the very same way. And, and, and no longer are we having to worry about what happens when we go because the plan is his. It doesn't matter if Caesar Augustus is ruling in Rome or Obama's in the White House. It doesn't matter. The plan is his. It belongs to him. And it doesn't matter if the enemy's standing in your face and saying to you, you can't do it because God can. You don't have to be afraid. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to shore up our, div- our, our defenses. We can walk boldly and courageously in this mission God has given us because we are walking with God. The God who came to be with us. This is significant. And we can, we can celebrate Christmas. But I think this is a different Christmas. A Christmas that's a whole lot less about what we can receive. And a whole lot more about what we have to say. A whole lot less about the trees and the lights and the glitter and the packages and a whole lot more about the God who put on flesh and dwelt with us, the God who became a man. You see, I think there's a whole lot more about what he's doing to fulfill his plans, to ultimately bring in the new creation, to make all things new. And so trust him. And live like him because you trust him. And go into the world and call the world to follow Jesus because you're telling them that he's come to get them. Put him on. Wear him like clothes. Put, put him on. I, I think that's what the, what, what the whole terminology is. Walking in a manner worthy of Christ. I, th- I think that's the idea is that we, we walk, we live in such a way that we're dressing ourselves in Christ. Devour his word that when you speak, it, it, it's him they hear. It's him they hear, and in your actions, because you're wearing him, it's him they see. He left us here, that through us the world might know that he came and is coming again. It's significant that he put on flesh and dwelt among us. It's profound. The most profound of all events in history. What are you going to do in response? What will you do now? Let's pray. Well, Father, of course we know that we are undeserving. We, we can't earn this. We couldn't have planned it ourselves. We don't have the power to pull it off ourselves. We can't do it on our own. By your power and through your spirit, you have accomplished this and will accomplish all that you've set out to do. So will you build our faith in this moment? Will you strengthen us that we might find less less joy and less satisfaction and less desire in the things of this world and we might be more drawn to walk alongside the God who came to be with us, the God who became a man. Would you do that? 
Would you make us confident? I, I, I know, I think about the people in this room, and I know the difficulties many of them face. I know the struggles that, that are ahead of them. I, I know the danger that some of them feel. Would you, would you remind us? Would you remind us? that because of what you've done, looking back into the past, we have great hope and we we, we have confident expectation for what's to come in the future. And when we stand up and may we walk, Father, will you embolden us and encourage us to walk as, as an ambassador, as an example, as one who calls out the gospel of the Jesus who came and who is coming again. All these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.